Amen. Well, go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. Thank you, Sam, for leading us so faithfully and excellently in such perfect songs that uh, just get our minds prepared as we dive into God's Word. Familiar story. You know Daniel chapter 3. While you're turning there, I just want to say two quick things by way of introduction. Number one, I have three privileges in my life, three graces that I look at on a regular basis, knowing that I am completely undeserving of these realities in order of their their beauty and their glory. Number one, Jesus has saved me. There is nothing better than that. He is my treasure. He is my savior. He He has forgiven me. He has loved me. He has eternally brought me into the family of God, there's nothing greater than that reality. And if you don't know that reality, today is the day to know that reality, to love Jesus Christ. Second privilege is my wife and my family, my precious children. I love them so much. My amazing wife, some of you know she was gone in Idaho this week, so I learned how truly amazing she is. From having to watch the kids and do everything that she normally does, it was incredible. Uh, an undeserved uh, privilege to be able to call her my wife and call my three kids my, my precious children. After those two gifts that the Lord has graciously given, the third most amazing privilege and grace in my life is you. There is... There's no reason why we should be together as a church family based off of any merit of our own. This is a gift. And it's not one that I take lightly or for granted. To look out and to see your faces, to know conversations we've had, to know fellowship that we've enjoyed, to know that we love one another, deeply love one another, enjoy one another. And that we enjoy gathering on the Lord's day to sit under his word and hear his word proclaimed. Last week, I went back and I looked because it felt like a very long service. And when it feels long for the preacher, you know that it's a very long sermon. One hour and 14 minutes. I feel like I owe you an apology for going that long. That is a long sermon. And not one of you last week said... Man, that was long. And not one of you last week said, we got to shorten this up a little bit. In fact, it was the exact opposite. To be able to have the privilege of pastoring and preaching and shepherding such a hungry church family for the word of God and for relationships with one another, it's just one of the greatest privileges of my life. And so to that end, I praise the Lord, but I also say thank you I love you so much, and I love being a part of this church family. It's just, again, other than being saved, and other than having my physical family, my church family is my third greatest privilege in my life. I love you all. The second thing that I wanted to say before we dive in this morning, a few weeks ago, uh, I mentioned, as we've been talking about Daniel, we've been talking about being brought to the end of ourselves, being brought to a place where we have nothing left to stand on on our own understanding. We have no other place, no other recourse but to go to God. And I said that that, that's a difficult providence, but it's a good place to be. And, And I said I've been praying for our church 
that God would gently, kindly, compassionately, and graciously bring you to a place where you have nothing else but him to fall on. And after saying that, and that is something I've been praying as I've been reading through Daniel and praying for our church family, after saying that, that Sunday to this Sunday, I've had over a dozen people come to me in tears saying, that's where I am today. Some of you have said, you can stop praying that now because I'm there. God has brought me to an end of myself. And I know that there are so many here in this room that are in a place right now where you have no other recourse left. And you feel like you are at the end of your rope and you feel like you are hopeless. And so to that end, I I want to say, number one, I praise the Lord that you're here, that you're sitting under the preaching of God's word and living in fellowship and community with one another. I also want to say there is an end in sight. It might not feel like it, but there is an end in sight. But I also want to remind you, as we'll be studying today and Lord willing, the next couple weeks in Daniel chapter 3, there is no better place to be, even if it's in the midst of the fire, as long as Jesus is next to you. And so if you have been brought to the end of yourself by Christ, but he is with you, holding your hand next to you, even though it's a difficult place to be, that's the best place to be. You'd rather be there than have everything going well and Jesus not be there. So to that end, I would like to just pray for you. I'd like to pray for all of us right now, but I'd like to pray for you specifically. Those of you who have talked to me, those of you who haven't, I know that I'm sure there's plenty of you in this room that haven't uh, brought up the fact that you're going through a trial that's brought you to the end of yourself, but I know that we are all either going through that, have gone through that, or are about to go through that. And So I pray that Daniel chapter 3 would be an encouragement to all of us, and I want to ask God to specifically minister to you this morning. So would you just pray with me? Father, we do take time now in the midst of our service to cry out to you because you are a holy God as we sang about. You are our firm foundation and it, it seems for some in, in this room that every other foundation that they may have been standing on or leaning on has been knocked out from under them and they have nothing else to stand on but you and it's a scary place but it's a good place God be near to them as your word says you will be be near to the brokenhearted. those who are filled with sorrow and despair because of suffering those who are confused those who have been betrayed those who are struggling with bitterness those who are struggling with hurt God there are so many different trials that we're all facing and I pray that you in your grace would speak to each specific circumstance that we're going through in a way that you would impact our hearts, even this morning by your word, to remind us yet again of your faithfulness, your sovereignty, your goodness, and your love. There are some, just this last week, that went through trials that brought them to an end of themselves. And God, I pray that you would be near to them, encourage them, build them up this morning. Shepherd our hearts now in a way where we not only know the reality of who you are and what you are doing in our lives, but we feel it, we sense it, we believe it, and it becomes real to us. May the attacks of the enemy be absolutely hindered and undone in this place, in this moment, because of your word and because of your spirit. Comfort us, build us up, 
Give us assurance that you who began the good work in us are faithful to complete it. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Daniel chapter 3 is where we are going to begin our study this morning as we have been going through the book of Daniel. We've been seeing on display the, the theme of God's sovereignty, God's sovereign control over all things. And I believe that that fits perfectly with uh, the prayer that we've been praying, that God would bring us to an end of ourselves to see that he is king and he is in control and not we ourselves. And I want to show you two aspects of that sovereignty at work in the book of Daniel as a whole, because I think Daniel, even the way it's constructed, the book of Daniel and then Daniel chapter 3, it's constructed in such a way to point us to the sovereignty of God, which will lead us into our study this morning. So we studied chapter 1, we saw a, kind of an introduction to the book of Daniel, and then we saw that first trial that Daniel and his three friends went through. And then chapter 2 through chapter 7 is really one major unit of thought. And we're going to see it as it goes through because the, the dream that was in chapter 2 is followed up by the image that Nebuchadnezzar is going to set up in chapter 3. And, and you'll see it go all the way to chapter 7. And if you think of, uh, I don't know if you've heard the term uh, a chiastic structure, you kind of think of an X, think of maybe just a, a greater than symbol where you have two points on the outside that lead into the middle. If you think of that symbol, that's a chiastic structure where grammar and narratives are structured in such a way where they parallel each other and then they move to a main point. So let's think about this together. Chapter 2 deals with the dream. You remember the dream that we studied. Chapter 7 deals with the dream as well about these four world empires. So they begin that chiastic structure. And then as we go into the middle, which we would expect to see the chiastic structure continue, chapter 2 and 7 are here, chapter 3 and chapter 6, as you move into the middle, deal with God preserving his people. Chapter 3 is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego preserved in the fire. Chapter 6 is Daniel in the lion's den. So you got God's people being preserved. Then chapter 4 and chapter 5 deal with Nebuchadnezzar having a vision and uh, Belshazzar's vision uh, that we're going to see and study together. So we've got two dreams Two episodes of God preserving his people, two visions, and then right in the middle, so we've got chapter 2, 7, 3, 6, 4, 5, so right in the middle of between 4 and 5 is the middle of this chiastic structure. What's the middle? The dead middle is chapter 4, verse 35. Chapter 4, verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing but God does according to his will in the host of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? That's the middle of chapter 2 and through chapter 7. That's the chiastic structure that Daniel is wanting us to see. It's all about God's sovereignty. There's a second chiastic structure in chapter 3. In chapter 3, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego... You have the king's decree in verses 1 through 7, you got to bow down and worship my idol. And then at the end of the chapter, verses 28 through 30, you have the king's de decree. You can only worship Yahweh because he is the God who has delivered. So you have two decrees that parallel each other. Moving into the middle, you have an accusation in verses 8 through 12 by the Chaldeans saying they didn't worship. And then you have a deliverance because they didn't worship in verses 24 through 27. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are going to be thrown into the fire, are delivered from the fire. You have Nebuchadnezzar getting really angry in verses 13 through 15. And then you have him getting really angry again in verses 19 through 23. And then right in the middle, 
You have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answering the king when he says, what God can deliver you from my hands? Verse 16 and 17, the dead middle of the chiastic structure of Daniel chapter 3 is this beautiful statement by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Why? Because God is sovereign, and he is a delivering God. Daniel's all about the sovereignty of God. And so yet again, we're going to see God's sovereignty in three different unique aspects over all of life this morning. So I want to read our section that we'll be studying this morning, verses 1 through 15, and then we will ask God's blessing on our time, and we will dive in and enjoy studying this amazing section of Scripture. Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width 6 cubits, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of that image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment that you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, At that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods. They do not worship the golden image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you don't serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now, if you're ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, all kinds of music, fall down, worship the image that I've made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace 
of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Father, we are familiar with this section of scripture. Many of us have grown up studying this, reading this, hearing this taught in Sunday school. And I pray this morning that you would help us to feel as if we were reading this for the very first time. To see in our mind's eye what this would have looked like, to feel what it would have felt like. And that we would see exactly what it is that you want us to see this morning. Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we'd behold wonderful things from your law. We pray in the name of our gracious God, who is the one who can deliver. Amen. Three aspects in life that God is sovereign over that we will see in this text. Aspect number one, God is sovereign over arrogant authorities. God is sovereign over arrogant authorities. He has command over those in power who are prideful. So verse 1 through verse 7, we see the introduction to this scene. Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. We don't know when this happened. Uh, The Septuagint says that it happened in the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, which would be 16 years after chapter 2. Some point to it being about 9 years after 2. The earliest would probably be about 2 years after chapter 2. I think it's probably a closer event to the events of chapter 2 than farther away, but we don't know for sure. What we do know for sure is Nebuchadnezzar's comments at the end of chapter 2. You remember when he said, your God's amazing, we should worship Yahweh, he's the one who delivered uh, the mystery of the dream to you, he's amazing. We know that those comments were superficial at best. Matthew Henry says, strong convictions often come short of sound conversions. Sinclair Ferguson says it this way, Nebuchadnezzar had experienced only a superficial and temporary setback to his self-glorification. His sinful heart had been shaken, but not renewed. The truth was that instead of having a new heart, he had the same old heart, now a little bit more hardened. And then Ferguson ends with these words, sometimes the worst and most cynical persecutors of God's people are those who themselves have had some kind of religious experience in earlier life. Mark it down. You can have religious experiences all you want and not be truly converted. And that's what we see in Nebuchadnezzar. So he makes this image of gold. The word image or the word statue in some of your translations occurs 11 times in this chapter. So we are meant to focus on this image and see this image as a central aspect of this chapter. Nebuchadnezzar most likely got the idea of this statue from his dream in chapter 2. You remember the dream in chapter 2, the head of gold is Babylon, uh, the, the chest and the arms is Medo-Persia, the, the legs and the, the, um, the, the stomach and the belly and the thighs are uh, Greece, and then uh, the legs and the feet are Rome. And we saw those four world empires that lead to the Antichrist's empire that leads to the rock that's going to destroy the statue and be a kingdom established by Jesus himself for all of time. So if Nebuchadnezzar wanted to make this exactly like the dream, he would have made it with four different metals and a rock standing next to it about to destroy it. But instead, Nebuchadnezzar makes the whole thing gold. Why? You remember what Nebuchadnezzar heard from Daniel in chapter 2. You, O king, are the head of gold, but after you, another nation is coming. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, I don't like those words after you. I want me to reign supreme and Babylon to never die. I want my kingdom to never disappear. 
Again, Sinclair Ferguson says, Nebuchadnezzar's little kingdom would have its day, but it would perish and the glory that he created would be destroyed. And Nebuchadnezzar doesn't like that. He wants Babylon to never fail. And so he sets up really a symbol of defiance against God himself. He says, God, you said that this is the way history is going to unfold. I disagree. It's always a bad idea to kick against God and try to make his words fail. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 4, let God be true and everyone be a liar. We cannot make God's words fail. But that's what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. So he makes this image of gold. It's probably a gold-plated image. It's not gold through and through. It's probably gold-plated, maybe brick or stone underneath. The height of it's 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. That's 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. Awkwardly tall, easy to tip over. So there's a base that's underneath, probably. And uh, there's a French archaeologist that found a massive brick structure that he claims is the base of Nebuchadnezzar's statue on the plains of Dura. It was about 50 feet uh, square and about 20 feet high. And so he found this massive brick structure that was probably holding and housing that statue that Nebuchadnezzar is building. He builds it on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. That's about 16 miles south of the city of Babylon. And what's most important about the plain of Dura is it's where the Tower of Babel was set up all the way back in Genesis chapter 11. That's where people, by their own ingenuity, hoped to transcend the divinely ordained boundaries that God had set up. And that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar's doing. So Daniel's trying to get us to think all Nebuchadnezzar's doing in his pride is saying, I can defeat God. I'm better than God. My empire can last longer than God says it's going to. And so he brings everyone who is important in verse 2 to see and to glory in this reality. He gives us a list in verse 2. We meet these people, the satraps. It's from a Persian word that means protectors of the kingdom. Uh, prefects were under the satraps. Governors were the highest level of each province, but under the prefects, this is a list of descending order of importance. Counselors were kind of like Supreme Court justices back then. Treasurers were the keepers of the finances. Judges were those that were ruling at the lower level. Magistrates were kind of police officers, and rulers were the lowest of governors in each little county. I actually really like the King James Version of this translation. Princes, governors, captains, judges, treasurers, counselors, and sheriffs. So you have all of the most important authorities in all of Babylon there at the plains of Dura. A scene is set, a massive brick structure covered in gold, shining with dazzling brilliance as the sun beats down on it. Thousands of the most important people in all of Babylon are gathered together. And they're all wondering what's going to happen next. Verse 4 tells us, the herald says, O peoples, the command's been given to you that at the moment you hear the sound of all these musical instruments, you're going to fall down and worship this statue. These instruments make up the official orchestra of Babylon. You have a horn that's an animal horn, a musical instrument like a trumpet. You have a flute that comes from an Aramaic word for whistling. You have the lyre, which was a stringed instrument between three to 12 strings. You have the trigon, which was a triangular instrument with four strings used for playing higher notes. As much as I really like the King James Version of the translation of the people, I really don't like the King James Version. It's actually comical for the translation of the instruments. Can I read it to you? This is amazing. Cornet flute, harp, and in place of trigon, a musical instrument called a sackbut. Not kidding. 
sultry, dulcimer, and then all kinds of music, but with a K at the end. So instead of a trigon, they're playing a sackbut. I have no idea what that is. That's got to be in the Bible just for us to have a good laugh. Trigon is a triangular musical instrument. It's not a sackbut, but it's a good word. Psaltery is a 10-stringed guitar instrument. Bagpipe comes from the Greek word symphonia. It's similar to bagpipes that we would know today. And then all kinds of music, other instruments that are there. You didn't have Sirius XM in your chariot in Babylon, right? You have to have uh, music brought in and played for you live. So musical accompaniment here is to accompany the idolatry that Nebuchadnezzar is promoting. And here's what he's demanding. He's demanding that they worship the golden image, which is to affirm their loyalty to him as king, to the Babylonian empire as the whole, and to the gods of Babylon who made Nebuchadnezzar king. That's what he's demanding when he asks and he commands them to worship him. The word worship is used 11 times in this chapter. Nebuchadnezzar wants worship. He wants worship. And at the same time, as he's demanding worship of himself, of his gods, and of Babylon as a whole, I think Daniel throws in a word for us to see how much of a farce this really is. The the phrase at the end of verse 7, at the time when all of the peoples heard all the music, they fell down and they worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. That word set, those two words set up, one word in Hebrew, and it's used nine times in this chapter, nine times to say Nebuchadnezzar had to build this idol. He had to set up this idol. He had to establish this idol because he's a man, not God. And this idol is just a piece of brick stone overlaid with gold. That word set up is used back in chapter 2, verse 20. And 21, when Daniel receives the vision of the dream, he says in verse 21, it is God who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. That word establishes the same word in Hebrew in chapter 3 for set up. He's the one who establishes. So I think Daniel is trying to get us to remember Nebuchadnezzar can establish everything he wants to. He can try on, on his own, uh, hardest amount possible to establish things on his own, but it's God who sets up and tears down. And I think that's probably what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are grasping onto. We don't have to worship you. You're just a man. God's the one who established you. He sets you up. He'll tear you down in his own time. Verse 6, we see the threat here. Why is there a furnace? Maybe it's because Nebuchadnezzar is uh, anticipating some level of resistance. I don't know. But my guess is probably it's just there because they were... Uh, overlaying the the stone and the brick with gold. And so you've got a furnace there to enable the making of the brick, to enable the gold to fit. It's just a big, massive kiln. Kilns from the ancient days could get up to uh, 1,800 feet or 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. They were very, very hot. And this isn't an idle threat. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 21 through 22 says this, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel concerning Ahab, the son of Kaliah, concerning Zedekiah, the son of Messiah, 
who are prophesying to you falsely in my name, behold, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and he will slay them before your eyes. Because of them, a curse will be used by all the exiles from Judah who are in Babylon, saying, may the Lord make you like Zedekiah and like Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. So everyone knows this isn't an idle threat. Nebuchadnezzar's done this before, and he's claiming that he's going to do it again. That's why, verse 7, at that time when the music plays, everyone falls down. Everyone falls down. This is the ultimate expression of peer pressure and intimidation. This is groupthink at its absolute worst. And there are some Jews there that I believe Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have expected to stay standing. But they're bowing down as well. So there are those who worship when it's popular. There are those who worship when it's advantageous to keep you alive. And in the midst of thousands of people, there are three who will not bow. Three. Just think about that. If we were to take time, and I were to have all of you stand up, and then when I said, worship me, all of you bow down except for three, it would be obvious who those three are. It would be obvious who those three are. And it would be very embarrassing to be those three, to realize nobody else is doing what we're doing, you would stand out like a sore thumb. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if we're going to go chapter 3 being earlier than later, probably between 18 to 20 years old at this point, easily could have reasoned with each other. And we're going to look at this in depth next week, but they easily could have reasoned, what about our safety? What about our future? We're in places of power and influence. If we die, we can't influence for the good of the country. So let's just bow down, get it over with. It's three to four seconds of bowing down and worshiping. We know we're not going to worship an idol. Uh, We can just bow down in our hearts to worship God and bow down with our bodies and do whatever Nebuchadnezzar wants. Could have easily said, if I'm dead, I can't help anyone. So uh, they, they make no excuse. They make no excuse. Again, more on that next week, but the bottom line is they aren't the heroes of the story. God is the hero of the story because God's the sustainer of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They would want God to be on display here this morning, not them. But we see here in these first few verses, verses 1 through 7, that God is still sovereign over an arrogant authority, over a prideful power in place. Number two, God is sovereign over envious enemies. Number two, God is sovereign over envious enemies. This is verses 8 through 12. For this reason, at the time that certain Chaldeans come forward, these are the same Chaldeans that we saw in chapter 2 that couldn't interpret the dream. This crowd apparently is large enough that it's not immediately made obvious to Nebuchadnezzar that there's three that aren't bowing down. So they see them, they go to King Nebuchadnezzar, and they say, you need to understand there's three who disobeyed. These are the wise men from chapter 2 who couldn't interpret the dream. So my guess is they're still pretty angry about the fact that they were one-upped by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel. They're envious. Just think about it. These three guys were brought in as war captives from Judah, and now they're better and in higher positions of authority than we are. So they're envious. They're jealous. There's also racial prejudice involved because they are not Jews And they hate the Jews that have been brought into their land, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. So, verse 8, they come forward and they, my, my Bible says, brought charges 
against the Jews. Literally in Aramaic, it is ate the pieces of the Jews. They want to eat the Jews alive. They hate them. They're driven by hostility, hatred to chew them up with their words before the king. So verse 9 through 11, they remind the king of the consequences. Hey, didn't you say that we had to bow down and worship this statue, and if we didn't, we'd be thrown in the fire? Is that what you said? Yes? Okay, cool. Verse 12, then there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon. You can, you can hear their animosity in their words. We deserve those places of appointment, but you gave it to them. Which, by the way, are you happy now, Nebuchadnezzar? We told you we were the right guys for the job, and now these Jews are making you look like a fool. It should have gone to us, right? They're trying to get Nebuchadnezzar into a place of the most possible agitation. They're questioning the king about his wisdom in choosing them to be in the court of the wise men. And then they accuse the Jews of three specific things. Daniel and his three friends being brought from uh, Judah over to Babylon. Now you've got these three individuals standing and not bowing down. They accuse them of three things. Number one, these men, middle of verse 12, these men, O king, have disregarded you. That's not true at all. In fact, that's so not true that Nebuchadnezzar, when he talks to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he doesn't even bring that one up. He knows that's not true. They have not disregarded me. They've cared for me. They're amazing authorities in Babylon. They're not disregarding me at all. Number two, they don't serve your gods. That's definitely true. Number three, they do not worship the golden image which you've set up. That's definitely true. Why do they hate the Jews so much? Jealousy for sure, envy for sure, but it goes much deeper than this. You remember our study of Revelation, Revelation chapter 12? You see the devil, it's waiting for the woman to give birth, birth to the Messiah, and he wants to devour the Messiah because he knows that if he can kill the Messiah, then there's no possible way for humanity to be saved. We saw the reason why. It was an answer. Chapter 12 is an answer to the question, why are the Jews being persecuted so much? They're being persecuted because the devil, before Christ was born, hated the Jews and wanted to kill them because he knew through the Jews the Messiah would come. So if he can kill all the Jews, no Messiah can show up. That's why we have Haman. That's why we have Herod the Great. That's why we have demonically inspired, devil-inspired people trying to destroy the Jews so that Messiah can't be born. And then once Messiah is born, and once Messiah goes to the cross, dies on the cross, is raised from the dead, conquering sin, conquering death, now the devil is just angry with the Jews because they are the people that brought forth the Messiah. That's why we have Hitler. That's why we have the persecution of the Jews to this day. So the Chaldeans, though envious, yes, I think are demonically inspired as well to try and destroy the Jews before the Messiah is born. Why are these Jews here? Why are the three friends here? Why are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego here? They knew that they wouldn't be able to worship the statue, so either it wasn't presented to them that that's what was going to happen, Maybe Nebuchadnezzar just said, I need you in the plains of Dura on this day. Just come show up. And they didn't know it was going to happen. Or maybe they did what was in chapter 1. Maybe they said, well, we can do that. We can show up. We can see you build the statue. We can be there when the music plays. We just can't bow down. There's one thing we can't do, and it's bow down and worship. There's a limit to our obedience. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, very clearly tells us every single authority is given by God And we must obey as long as they're not telling us to disobey God. 
including paying taxes. Paul tells us that we have to pay taxes. And by the way, remember, Paul is writing when Nero is in control, who I think is way worse than Nebuchadnezzar. And Paul says we have to obey. We have to obey as long as they're not commanding us to disobey God. But when they tell us to disobey God, that's when there's a limit to our our obedience to human authority because every human authority has been established by God and therefore Nebuchadnezzar has been established by God and that doesn't make Nebuchadnezzar God. God is still on his throne. Nebuchadnezzar is just trying to play the role of God that only God himself occupies. I also think it's very interesting because there's different degrees of trials. In chapter 1, it was about eating food. In chapter 3, it's about bowing down and worshiping. Different consequences as well. Here's the bottom line. Daniel's three friends had enjoyed favor in Babylon for a few years, but favor in Babylon is always fleeting, and we can never rely on it. Brothers and sisters, we need to know that. If we ever get any political favor whatsoever, we're still in Babylon. We're not in heaven. We're, hit, we're citizens of heaven, and we're not in our hometown in our citizenship in heaven. So we're always going to be in Babylon, and any favor that we have here is fleeting favor. Daniel's not here, by the way, because at the end of chapter 2, we were told that he was supposed to stay in Babylon to keep the affairs in order in Babylon. So he's not going to move 60 miles away to Dura for this event. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have courage to not compromise. Their mind was made up far before the pressure comes. And if you wait until the moment of truth, it's often going to be too late. Daniel Aiken says it this way, while we may be While we may not be confronted in the precise way that these three men were, we can be certain that the idols of our day will present themselves to us again and again. Some may come quietly and without drawing much attention. Others, however, will be public and put on display for many to witness. When that happens, what will you do? We may not live in the ancient city of Babylon, but we are exiles in a foreign land that is not our home. And idols can always be seductive. The fact is, many idols are good things when properly viewed and used, but when a good thing becomes a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. It becomes an idol, and do not be in doubt or deceived. God's people will be confronted with the idols of this world. So before we even get to it, which we'll get to it, Lord willing, next week, my question is, when all is on the line, who will you worship? When the moment of choice comes, who will you obey? By the way, there is a statue that's coming God prophesied. There's a statue that's coming, Revelation chapter 13. The Antichrist is going to establish a statue of himself. The false prophet's going to help him, and he's going to demand that the entire world bow down and worship that statue. So we know that this is going to happen. Be prepared now in your hearts to respond accordingly. Number one, we see God is sovereign over arrogant authorities. Number two, we see God is sovereign over envious enemies. And finally, number three, we see God is sovereign over probable persecution. God is sovereign over probable persecution. This is verses 13 through 15. Nebuchadnezzar gets enraged. He's angry. He orders the men to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to him. And he says, is this true? Verse 14. Is it true? Remember, there were three accusations. Nebuchadnezzar only brings two of them back up. Is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Is that true? By the way, there's no reply recorded. I'm guessing that there was one. They probably told the king what they had done or specifically what they hadn't done and why they hadn't done it. 
But Nebuchadnezzar is just saying, look at everything I've done for you. Look at everything I've done for you. Look at how kind I've been to you. And this is how you repay me? You're defying me? And you're defying me publicly? You have to note how easy this seems to Nebuchadnezzar. How reasonable this all seems. Nebuchadnezzar is not asking these three men to defy or deny their God. He's just simply asking them to include all of Nebuchadnezzar's God alongside of these three Jewish men's God. He's not asking them to give up Yahweh. He's just asking them to add a couple more gods to Yahweh. Daniel 3 is only a problem for monotheists. Nebuchadnezzar isn't saying you only have to worship him. Just you can worship him alongside other gods. The polytheists would have no problem with this. It's the same for us today. The issue is not that we worship Jesus. The issue is that we worship Jesus exclusively, alone. And by the way, brothers and sisters, this is how persecution begins, usually. Not as persecution the way we think it is, but as a non-believer in power saying something that seems totally reasonable to them, and then believers saying, we can't do that. We can't do that. Just think about it in our culture today. This has happened in the millennia of people following God. If you are a God follower, if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of Yahweh, this has happened where the culture around you says, your obedience to God is fine, that's cool, you can do that. And then they'll say, hey, one thing, we're in the midst of Pride Month. Hey, just one thing. Love is love, marry whoever you want, love whoever you want. That's fine, that's reasonable, right? And when the world around you says this is reasonable and a cultural issue and you should applaud it as well because it's reasonable and we say we can't do that, that's when persecution begins. They're scratching their head. Why? That makes no sense. Love is love. Who are you to say that they're not allowed to do that? What are you saying? That's what's happening here. By the way, the church does a terrible job historically at responding to these things. You notice in cultural Christianity, when Christianity is culturally accepted, we are fine to call out things as sin that the world calls out as sin. Have you noticed this in church history? For instance, today, racism has become an issue that is so clearly defined and so clearly on the table and America as a whole is all about talking about it and dealing with it and guess what the church has said hey we're on board too because the culture says this is wrong we're, we're on board to go yeah that's wrong and I look and I go wait time out where were we in the 1800s where, where, where were we in the Baptist churches in the south in the deep south why didn't we say, hang on, this is wrong? Because it wasn't culturally accepted at that point. I think it's flipped for us today. Back in the day, it was a very taboo thing to discuss homosexuality, to talk about that. It was a very taboo thing. And so if the church is saying, we don't think that this is accepted, and the culture says, we don't think this is accepted, we can say the same thing. But now that the culture has shifted... 
Either the church is going to acquiesce to whatever the culture says to save their own neck, which I would say isn't the true capital C church, or the church is going to have to say, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we can't do that. We do it with love, we do it with grace, we do it with respect, but we can't do that. Brothers and sisters, cultural Christianity is a stronger danger than Nebuchadnezzar. Cultural Christianity is a stronger danger than what Nebuchadnezzar is saying right here. And there's always going to be Chaldeans ready to chew us up when we don't fall in line with what the culture says. King Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, I'm willing to give you guys another chance. I love you. I'm very angry right now because I don't know what you're doing and it doesn't make sense to me, but I'll give you another shot. He says in verse 15, if you're ready at the moment, please, immediately, when you hear all of the music, fall down and worship the image, very well. My Bible says very well. Some of your Bibles might say well and good. If you do it now, we'll throw all this away, pretend like it never happened, you'll be fine. But if you don't, you will immediately, literally in the hour, in the very moment that you do it, like I'm watching you, that's what Nebuchadnezzar is saying. I'm going to tell the band to start, and I'm focusing right on you. In fact, don't go back to your places in line. Stand right here, and I'm going to watch you. And if the music starts, and I don't see you bowing down, you're going right into the fire. And then he says this. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Yeah, your God may be powerful. I remember. He told you the dream in in chapter 2. I get it but I'm more powerful. Nebuchadnezzar is directly challenging Yahweh. And kings and kingdoms have always said this to God's people through every millennia. You have a God you worship? Well, my gods are powerful, more powerful. They're stronger. They're better than your gods. It's very interesting because chapter 2 had impacted Nebuchadnezzar for the worse. The dream had made Nebuchadnezzar say, "Mm, I don't want that dream to come true. I want to be in power forever. But Nebuchadnezzar's three Jewish authorities... Chapter 2 impacted them for the better. Because they're thinking, what God can deliver us out of your hand? It's the rock that destroys your kingdom. That rock is going to establish a kingdom forever, made without hands. So what God can deliver us? That God. Chapter 2, the dream in chapter 2, negatively impacts Nebuchadnezzar, positively impacts Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They are Psalm 1 men. They're Psalm 101 men. They're Titus 2 men. They're 1 Timothy 6 men. They're men in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, who say, we must obey God rather than man. This is all first commandment stuff. We cannot obey you and worship any other God but God. There's so many verses that I wanted to turn to, and maybe we'll be able to do it next week, to talk about persecution. I could just give you a few headings. Persecution comes from men and women who oppose God and his people. Persecution is normal. It's something that we should expect. First Peter chapter 4 that we read earlier. Satan desires to destroy all of God's people, and God is sovereign over persecution. That was the whole point of these verses. God is sovereign over probable persecution. He's sovereign over it all. So we have the setup. We have the setup. We know where this verse, where this passage, where this text is going. But we have to just sit in these verses for just a little while longer before we move on to how it's going to transpire. I want you, just even this week, to meditate on the reality of what would you have said if you were these three friends? 
Here's the reality. Our tendency is to identify ourselves with Daniel's three friends. As David Helm says, if we are honest, we should all primarily identify with the condition of King Nebuchadnezzar, for as with him, the architect of our own soul rises to the heavens in self-adulation, and if given our way, we are too tempted to call upon everyone within earshot to pay respects to our deeds. Brothers and sisters, we are more like King Nebuchadnezzar than we are like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Don't identify yourself with those three friends. We are way more like Nebuchadnezzar than like them. God has told us, just like he told Nebuchadnezzar, that we are finite, and a lot of us kick against that and hate that reality. Just like Nebuchadnezzar, our pride leads us to envy, and our envy leads us to self-worship, and our self-worship leads us to get offended when people don't worship us the way that we worship us. And I would ask the same question that Nebuchadnezzar asks. Who is there to deliver us from our own pride and selfishness? That's what Paul asked, by the way, in Romans chapter 7 through 8. I don't do the things I want to do. I do the things I don't want to do. Who can deliver me from this bondage? And the answer is, praise be to God. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus alone is the one that we are to worship and serve, and he alone is the one who can deliver us from ourselves. Brothers and sisters, run to Christ. Be delivered by him. Say the words of the the hymn writer, the dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol may be, help me to tear it from its throne and worship only thee. Father, we ask that you would, in your kindness, live that prayer out. Help us to live that prayer out in our lives. Rip away whatever idol it is. Just as we studied, there are things that are good in this life, good things that lead us to a place of idolatry because they become a God thing, where we seek satisfaction in them, where we start to worship them, we start to obey them. It could be relationships, it could be money, it could be fame, it could be so many different things. Rip away those idols so that we would end up being in a place just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But God, before we go there next week, help us to humbly and honestly and teachably address the pride that's in our own hearts. We point the finger at Nebuchadnezzar and we would say here this morning, he is an evil, wicked man and he's doing an evil, wicked thing. But the same heart that resides in him is the heart that resides in all of us of pride, of an ego that desires all to see us as worthy of worship. God, may we fight against that even now as we sing and respond by saying you and you alone will we be amazed by. You and you alone will we worship. For you and you alone are our deliverer. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.